Tracy Noah from the Marion Library Service and welcome to our Library Through the Lens live webinar with special guest author Pip Williams. Since the closure of our libraries and venues, we've been working hard to still connect and engage with you through our Library Through the Lens series of adult programs delivered differently. We had to reimagine how to bring you the author talks that you've grown to expect from us, so thank you for joining us today. This morning, Pip, who became a global sensation even before her debut novel was published, following an international rights frenzy, will talk about her book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, a delightful, lyrical and deeply thought-provoking celebration of words. Please feel free at any time during the presentation to type questions you have for Pip into the Q&A text box on your screen, and I will ask her these at the end of her talk. Now sit back, relax, and please welcome Pip. Hello, everybody. Um, thank you so much for joining me at Library Through the Lens, and thank you to Tracy and Marion Libraries for hosting this really fabulous event. I know that um, in lockdown, we're, we're all feeling, um, you know, we're missing our libraries, we're missing our public spaces. Um, and one of the wonderful things that has happened um, through uh, this whole coronavirus uh, crisis is actually this ability to connect digitally. Um, and so I know that um, many more people are actually connecting with libraries uh, who may not have been able to access them very easily before. Uh, so people living in rural areas and remote areas. So it's really, really a huge pleasure um, if you're joining us from, from remote areas um, to sort of have you, have you here this morning. So thank you for joining in. Um, before I start talking about my book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, which I have curated a... Uh, <laughs> a display behind me. Um, before I start talking about that, I'd like to acknowledge that um, today I'm actually talking to you um, from the traditional lands of the Paramank people of the Adelaide Hills. Um, and they were the first storytellers in this place where I sit. And I'd like to acknowledge their language in particular uh, and words that may have been lost over the past 200 or so years. Um, my book is about words, and so I think it's important to acknowledge not just uh, the words that are in my book, but the words um, from all over this country that, that have deep meaning um, um, and that we, we don't all know or understand and in many cases have been lost. So The Dictionary of Lost Words is my first novel, and I have always wanted to write fiction, uh, but I have written a couple of other books. I, I wrote a memoir a few years ago called One Italian Summer. Um, and before that, I was an academic and I wrote a couple of academic um, bits and pieces. Uh, but fiction has been a lifelong dream for me. Um, and the first thing I published actually was a poem in Dolly magazine uh, when I was 15. And it was very um, imaginatively titled 15, so you can imagine what it was about. Um, and from there though, I, I sort of, uh, I never anticipated that I could actually be a writer as, as a profession, if you like. I didn't think I could live my life as a writer, so I went off and did other things. Um, and in the end, it just kept nagging at me and I'm so glad I answered the call. Um, and for the last couple of years, I've been writing this book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, and it has been the most wonderful and rewarding two years um, of my life, really, uh, in terms of fulfilling a, a dream. But but just the 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 interesting places that you go when you get to write fiction, and I'll talk about that later. So this book uh, basically came about after I read 
uh, a smaller book called The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, um, which was all about the dictionary. And it made me realise that the Oxford English Dictionary, which is our, I suppose, most venerated word text, it's what we turn to when we want to know what a word means, it's what we turn to when we have scrabble arguments, um, it's what we ask our children to, you know, we, we ask our children to look up words in dictionaries if they can't spell them or they don't understand the meaning. Um, and we don't question them really, but after I read a little bit about the dictionary, I realised that it may have been a gendered text and I, I had basically two simple questions. And my question was, do words mean different things to men and women? And if they do, is it possible that some words have been left out of the dictionary or some meanings of words have been left out of the dictionary? And the reason I had these questions was because when I read just this gorgeous little book, which is this one, The Surgeon of Crowthorn, so it's tiny, um, it's non-fiction, so it is about the um, relationship between James Murray, who was the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, back in the um, 1880s to about 1915. So he was the father of the dictionary, really. It was This book is about the relationship between him and one of the volunteers who sent in the meanings of words um, so that the lexicographers could define them. So James Murray sent out a call. It was like a um, crowdsourcing, um, the first crowdsourcing, uh, you know, exercise really. He sent a call out to the general public around the UK but also around the world asking them to find um, examples of how words have been used in literature. Um, so there were certain words that they wanted to know the meanings of but they didn't have enough evidence to write a meaning and so they would send out sometimes lists of words and people would then find those words in books and sometimes journals, scientific journals or uh, literary journals and then they would send examples, quotations in with that word. Um, and people would also just send in any old words. So the, the difference between the, the, the Oxford English Dictionary and Samuel Johnson's Dictionary, which came before it, is that um, Samuel jo Johnson's Dictionary, I think, had about 10,000 words in it. Um, and the Oxford English Dictionary ended up having about half a million words in it. Um, so first of all, the task was to define every single word in the English language, not just the interesting ones, not just the hard ones, but all of the easy ones, all of the tiny ones, all of the ones that we use without thinking, the the, the in, the and, the but, and all of the difficult ones, of course, as well. Um, so it was a humongous task and, and, you know, all credit to them. But the them, it was all men. So all of the editors were men, all of the lexicographers were men. Um, most of the assistants were men, though there were some women, particularly daughters and wives of the editors, um, were workers on the dictionary. Um, and many of the, most of the volunteers, hundreds of thousands of, well, thousands of volunteers who would send in words, most of them were men. But most importantly, the literature that they were referring to um, was written mostly by men. And if you think this is pre-20th century, uh, and they are going back hundreds of years to Chaucer and before Chaucer, um, that literature was mostly written by men, and that is the evidence that they were using to define words. And so this, this was, I suppose, what made me interested in the dictionary. 
Um, and then uh, once I started reading about it, I didn't initially think about writing a novel, um, but once I started reading about it, this one little uh, this one little story kept popping up. This anecdote about one word that had been lost, uh, and and the Ox the Oxford English Dictionary um, only only admits to losing one single word. And that word was bondmaid. And bondmaid means a slave girl. And no one knows how this word was lost. And that is when I decided that there was a fictional story to be written. And so what I decided to do was throw a young woman into the scriptorium, which is actually just a garden shed in the back garden of uh, Dr. James Murray's house in Oxford. But it's where the lexicographers gathered to collate all of the words for the Oxford English Dictionary. And I put a, a girl in the mix of all of that and I see what happens. And because no one knows how the word bondmaid was lost, that means I can fictionalise that. And so my character Esme, um, she comes across this word and um, from there the story, the story goes. So I thought I might do a very short reading which just introduces Esme and her father and the scriptorium. It's right from the beginning, it's the prologue. So if you haven't read this, um, this is where you will start. If you have read it, then um, you might recognise it. So bear with me. Okay. Prologue. February, 1886. Before the lost word, there was another it arrived at the scriptorium in a second-hand envelope, the old address crossed out and Dr Murray, Sunnyside, Oxford, written in its place. It was Dar's job to open the post and mine to sit on his lap like a queen on her throne and help him ease each word out of its folded cradle. He'd tell me what pile to put it on and sometimes he'd pause, cover my hand with his, and guide my finger up and down and around the letters, sounding them into my ear. He'd say the word and I would echo it. Then he'd tell me what it meant. This word was written on a scrap of brown paper, its edges rough where it had been torn to match Dr Murray's preferred dimensions. Dar paused and I readied myself to learn it. But his hand didn't cover mine and when I turned to hurry him, the look on his face made me stop. As close as we were, he looked far away. I turned back to the word and tried to understand. Without his hand to guide me, I traced each letter. What does it say? I asked. Lily, he said. Like Mama? Like Mama. Does that mean she'll be in the dictionary? In a way, yes. Will we all be in the dictionary? No. Why? I felt myself rise and fall on the movement of his breath. A name must mean something to be in the dictionary. I looked at the word again. Was Mama like a flower? I asked. Da nodded, the most beautiful flower. He picked up the word and read the sentence beneath it. Then he turned it over, looking for more. It's incomplete, he said but he read it again, his eyes flicking back and forth as if he might find what was missing. 
He put the word down on the smallest pile. Dar pushed his chair back from the sorting table. I climbed off his lap and readied myself to hold the first pile of slips. This was another job I could help with, and I loved to see that each word find its place among the pigeonholes. He picked up the smallest pile and I tried to guess where Mama would go. Not too high and not too low, I sang to myself. But instead of putting the words in my hand, Dar took three long steps towards the fire grate and threw them into the flames. There were three slips. When they left his hand, each was danced by the draft of heat to a different resting place. Before it had even landed, I saw Lily begin to curl. I heard myself scream as I ran towards the grate. I heard Dar bellow my name. The slip was writhing. I reached in to rescue it, even as the brown paper charred and the letters written on it turned to shadows. I thought I might hold it like an oak leaf, faded and winter crisp. But when I wrapped my fingers around the word, it shattered. I might have stayed in that moment forever, but Dar yanked me away with a force that winded. He ran with me out of the scriptorium and plunged my hand into the snow. His face was ashen. So I told him it didn't hurt. But when I unfurled my hand, the blackened shards of the word were stuck to my melted skin. Some words are more important than others. I learned this growing up in the scriptorium, but it took me a long time to understand why. Thank you for listening to that. Um, so that's the prologue of the book and it introduces uh, my main character, Esme. Um, and from there, not, it's not a spoiler, in the next chapter she uh, comes across the word bondmaid and it's the first of many words that she squirrels away in her pocket and then takes and hides in a, uh, in a trunk under the bed of the maid who works for Dr Murray in the big house and who is Esme's dearest friend. Um, and so that's where the story starts. Um, I thought perhaps uh, what I might do in terms of talking about the book is I, um, through my research uh, and through the writing, I collected bits and pieces, which are, I suppose, my uh, treasures, just like Esme's treasures were the words. Uh, my treasures are things that um, helped me to write this book, and I too have kept them in a trunk. Um, so the first one I've already spoken about, it was uh, The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which for me is where this um, story starts. Um, and, you know, I would, I would, I'm sure a lot of you have actually read this book. It's recently been turned into a film, I think. Um, I haven't seen it and apparently it's not very good. Uh, but the book is fantastic. Um, and Simon Winchester also went on to write another book called The Meaning of Everything, uh, which was a bit more about the um, making of the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, however, in my uh, research, I turned to uh, more scholarly <laughs> um, examples of, of what happened with uh, the making of the dictionary and probably my most um, treasured books in terms of doing the research. And I, this may be boring to some of you, but for some of you, you might be interested. There were two books that I relied on really heavily. And the first is, is this one. Um, it's 
it's called the uh, making of the Oxford English Dictionary um, and you can see all my post-it notes there. Uh, this, this I think took Peter Gilliver about 10 years to write um, and it's a really authoritative um, account of really everything about the dictionary um, and everything about all of the uh, people who were involved. Um, but even Peter, who is a, a really fabulous lexicographer, um, couldn't put in what wasn't in the historical record. And one of the things uh, that isn't in the historical record is much information about the women who were involved um, in the dictionary. And there were quite a few. Um, Everyone from Ada Murray, who was uh, James Murray's wife and the mother of his 11 children, um, <clears throat> all who made it to adulthood, which at the time was uh, quite, quite an achievement, really. Um, Ada, a lot of people think that the dictionary would not have happened if not for Ada Murray, because not only did she run the household, but she made sure that um, James Murray stayed fit and sane uh, during the process because he was quite um, obsessed with it and it was a massive undertaking um, and often affected his health. So she kept, she kept him going, which meant she kept the dictionary going. The other book that has been invaluable to me <clears throat> is this one by a woman. Uh, she's a, actually a, a feminist dictionary scholar uh, called Ling Linda Mugglestone. She has the most beautiful surname. Um, and I'm a Harry Potter fan, so you can imagine uh, I was probably attracted to her surname first. And this book is called Lost for Words, and it actually talks about many of the words that have been excluded from the Oxford English Dictionary and why that might be. So um, as, you, as you read the novel, uh, you will probably uh, get a bit of an understanding of where I'm coming from on that, and some of that I got from, I got from here. So I do like to acknowledge my sources. Um, so they're a couple of the books that uh, really helped me to understand uh, what the history of the Oxford English Dictionary was. And it was incredibly important to me right from the beginning not to mess with the history. So um, I feel quite confident that if you read this book, um, anything that you glean about the dictionary is true. Um, I haven't messed with the timelines. I haven't, even the words, I have every word that I've referred to that's in the dictionary, I've referred to it. Um, at the time it was actually um, entered into the dictionary or was being worked on, um, all of the historical information, uh, to the best of my ability, um, is as the historical record shows. What I wanted to do was fill in the gaps. So in many ways, um, what I was doing is writing between the lines of the dictionary. And I told you um, about the little story of the lost word, the word bond made. Um, that is the, the word that started all of this. And, and that word was meant to be in this volume. So my partner, Shannon, uh, gave me this for my 50th birthday. And um, this is probably my most precious possession. Uh, this is an original um, first edition um, volume of A and B. And it was published in 1888. Um, it was the first volume of the Oxford English Dictionary ever published. Um, what they did, though, they, they actually published fascicles prior to publishing volumes. So they would, a fascicle is like a section. So they would publish sections of words. So the very first section ever published was A to Ant. Um, and to give you a sense of how big this project was, A to Ant 
was published in um, 1886, I think, and or possibly 1884, actually. And they started this project in 1874 or 1875. So it took 10 years <laughs> to get A to Ant published. So a huge undertaking. But when I opened my brand new dictionary that I got for my birthday and I turned to B, it was the most wonderful kind of um, goosebumpy moment to turn to B and to look for the word bondmaid and to see that, in fact, it was missing. It's not there. So this is my proof of that story. Um, and, and this is, I suppose, this is the history within which my story, my fiction, is, is written. Um, it's in the sort of white spaces of this dictionary. Um, and um, I, can't, I can't tell you how much joy I have had doing the research for this book. And I, I know word nerds might, might, um, might understand this, but I, I'm not really a word nerd. I wasn't a word nerd before this. And I would never have thought that I would spend my time looking through dictionaries. But the Oxford English Dictionary is actually like a history book. It's different to other dictionaries, which really just give us the contemporary meaning of a word and, um, and how it might be used. But the Oxford English Dictionary traces the history of a word. It tells you what words have meant um, right back to the very first textual example of that word. And so you can see how words have changed over time. And because these dictionaries were published between 1888 and 1928, they also um, stop at a certain time in history and they tell us about the, the social attitudes of that time just in the way they're written. So, for example, there's a word pant, as in pants. I'm wearing pants today. Lots of people will, wear, will be wearing pants today. The word pants is in the Oxford English Dictionary, the first edition, and it is described as a vulgar um, abbreviation of the word pantaloons. So just that word vulgar tells us so much about the, the attitudes of the time that they make a judgment about the word. And this happens throughout the first edition. Um, I'm happy to say that the Oxford English Dictionary never gets rid of a word, but it does update its um, meanings and definitions and, and words like vulgar have been uh, taken out in subsequent um, subsequent sort of writings of the dictionary. There's only been two editions, actually. They're working on the third edition, um, but you probably won't find the word vulgar or other kind of judgmental words um, in the second edition as you would in the first. Um, so that's this is another one of my artefacts, which I treasure. Um, and if I have a, um, if I actually get Tracy, she might put up uh, some photographs that I've got of that slip bond made. So while that's up, I'll just have a little chat about it. So these are just three of the eight slips. So there were eight bond made slips. Um, and what would happen is people, volunteers, you can see um, that these words have been written on tiny slips of paper about the size of a postcard. They're very difficult to um, read. The second one down has bond made at the top, which is the word that um, Dr Murray was interested in. And then it's got 1596, which is the date that this particular quote was taken from. It's Shakespeare. And it says, good sister, wrong me not nor wrong yourself to make a bondmaid and a slave of me. 
Um, so that was an example of how the word bond maid might have been used back in 1596. And I think, um, in the second edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, that quote actually, I think, gets into the dictionary as an example of use. But there were, what what I, I had the enormous uh, privilege of actually going to um, Oxford and visiting the archives of the Oxford University Press and the dictionary archives. And they actually gave me access to all of the original slips. And so these are just an example of some of the slips I got out. So I found the word bond made but what I never did find was the top slip. And the top slip is where the definition um, was written. And so that genuinely did get lost. Even though these slips were originally found, the definition slip was, was never found. Um, Tracy might like to move on to the next um, image. So these are images of how the slips were tied up in bundles. Now, some of these have new ribbon on them the one with the white ribbon, but you can see some are just tied with old string. That's original string from 100 years ago. So um, you might also notice that the slips have written in sort of pencil, coloured pencil, big numbers written on them. So the way they would transport the slips from the scriptorium where the lexicographers were working on them to the uh, Oxford University Press where they were printed um, was simply by tying the slips together in bundles in the order that they wanted them to be um, typeset onto, um, onto paper. Uh, so it was very analogue. <laughs> it was also, you know, I'm surprised more slips did not go missing because um, this was probably put in someone's satchel, then bicycled over to the Oxford University Press, and then a typesetter, or what would be called a compositor, would then just get these slips out, untie that ribbon, and they would typeset the definitions so that eventually they'd come up with pages like the one that you can see here. So this is a proof page um, and they would print it and then it would go back to the lexicographers. They'd read it, they'd make um, edits, as you can see. Occasionally they'll add a new word and so you can see someone has stuck to the side of this proof a new meaning for a word that will be added again by the compositors before it's printed um, for good. So they're just some examples of um, how I did the research for, for this book. Um, I, I went into the archives. Um, I had a look often at um, the sort of the, the final proof. So not the um, version that went to print, but the one just before. And every now and then I would come across a word that had been crossed out. Um, and those words were fascinating to me because these are words that almost made it into the dictionary, but in the end they didn't. Um, and sometimes they didn't because um, they were nonsense words. Uh, they were only used once uh, by somebody, but other times there's no real explanation for why they were left out. Um, one word that was left out um, that almost got in was a word called literately. Now, I think you and I all understand what literately means. It means learnedly. It means you've done something literately. You've written, you know, um, something is written and, oh, it's written very literately. And that was, um, that word was used in a book, a novel written by a woman, um, but there were no other examples of, of its use. And so in the end, it got crossed out and it was crossed out um, ostensibly because there, were, there was only one example of its use. And yet, in the same, at the same time, another word did get in, and that word is 
jog trotty, <laughs> which was coined by Dickens. And it's what's called a nonce word. And a nonce word is like a nonsense word. Um, it's kind of been made up. It's never been used before or after, um, but it got into the dictionary. Another word that got in, um, and I think this is a nice contrast to literally, is the word literata. So literata refers to a learned lady. And it was coined by Coleridge, and it had only one example of use, just Coleridge. Um, and it got five lines in the Oxford English Dictionary. And the reason I find this so interesting is because while literata might make sense, I don't understand why learned ladies need to be separated from the literati, which is just learned people, not learned men, learned people. So you would think that a learned lady <laughs> could simply belong to the literati. She didn't need a word all for herself. She shouldn't be so unusual as to require a word um, that describes her separately to men. Um, and so these are just some of the, you know, some of the interesting things that I came across in the research that, um, that helped me to form my story. Um, so Tracy, you might want to just take that off now. Thank you. Um, yeah, so one of the women that was very important in my story, so those of you who've read it um, will have come across Dita. So Dita is a character who is based on a woman called Edith Thompson. Um, Edith Thompson is a real person um, and she was a volunteer for the Oxford English Dictionary. And she volunteered from prior to the very first publication of the words A to Ant all the way through to the very last words. So she worked on the dictionary and she was a very, very valued volunteer. So she was so accomplished. She was a historian herself, an uneducated historian, but a historian. She, she wrote a history of England that was um, a textbook used in schools. Um, she was a very intelligent woman. And she was so valuable that she would often be sent those proof pages. So many of those proof pages that I had a photograph of back then, it's Edith Thompson's writing all over them. Um, she adds words, she takes words out, she corrects them. She was an incredibly useful, valuable member of the Oxford, you know, Oxford English Dictionary team. Um, having said that, she was not invited to the celebratory dinner in 1928. In fact, no women were invited to the celebration of the dictionary. Even though men who had worked on the dictionary for three months got invited, Edith Thompson didn't, and she had dedicated her entire life to the dictionary. So had Ross Frith Murray, who was the daughter of James Murray. She had worked on the dictionary from the, well, from a child um, throughout the entire, um, through decades of her life. Um, and so had Eleanor Bradley, who was Henry Bradley's daughter, and Henry Bradley was the second editor of the dictionary. They had all dedicated their lives to the dictionary, and they weren't invited to the celebration dinner. Um, and I came across this information through my reading, but when I went to the archives, I came across the seating plan <laughs> for the celebration of the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, you won't be able to read any of this, but just down in this corner here is um, um, J.R. Tolkien. So he got invited uh, because he worked on the dictionary for 12 months. 
uh, prior to um, uh, after after World War One, he came back and he worked on the dictionary for for about twelve months, um, and he actually defined the word warlock, which which is quite nice, and also walrus. Um, and there are other people here, including a school teacher and you know all sorts of people, uh, lots of newspaper men. Um, but the interesting thing is, this this celebration dinner was held at Goldsmiths Hall in London. That was a, a men's club. And for that reason, they didn't invite any of the women. They could have just, I suppose, found a different uh, location. But they did allow three women to sit in the balcony and watch the men eat. Um, and I also came across in the archives the menu. <laughs> so the men ate very well that night. Uh, they drank very well. And the women, I have imagined them sitting in the balcony on wooden sort of benches, eating homemade sandwiches. Uh, while they watch the Prime Minister of England, Stanley Baldwin, raise a glass to all the men who um, who created the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, and in many ways, I have written this book uh, for those women. Um, and one of the dilemmas I had in writing it is whether or not to name Edith Thompson. So I turned her into Esme's godmother. Um, now, Esme's fictional, so of course she couldn't have been Esme's godmother in real life, but I, I knew more about Edith than I did about any other woman who, who had participated in the, in the dictionary. Um, and so what I did know about her, I have, I have included in the story, but there was so much I didn't know about her. And my dilemma was, do I call her Edith Thompson? Um, even though I've made most of her up, or or do I give her a pseudonym, something that, and so no one will know that I've actually used Edith Thompson as, as my kind of inspiration for this character. It was a huge problem, and I grappled with it right up until printing of the book. In the end, what I didn't want to do was essentially excise Edith Thompson from history again. I didn't want to leave her out of my book. Um, I wanted to her to have a place and so what I did instead to to sort of acknowledge that I had um, invented a lot of her um, life I gave her the nickname Dita and so whenever she is um, in in conversation with or in scenes with my fictional character Esme she's referred to as Dita but whenever I had her writing to James Murray which she did um, and so on, I would use her real name, Edith Thompson, um, because I do want people to know Edith Thompson. I love Edith Thompson. I got to know her by reading her letters um, in the archives of the Oxford University Press. I, um, there is one small note that is in the book that is exactly a note that she sent to uh, James Murray. Um, she was an intelligent woman. She often used um, drawings to illustrate some of the meanings of, of things, of words. Um, she had a great sense of humour, uh, dry wit, uh, and I could not leave her out. And so, um, yeah, and so that's how I solved that problem of weaving fact and fiction around a real person. Um, now, the other, the other really important um, aspects of this novel, which I didn't consider when I first started, I was really only interested in the dictionary. But as soon as I started reading about um, that time in history, um, and so mostly I was interested in 
the late 19th century, early 20th century. Of course, I, I couldn't um, ignore the fact that that was when the suffrage movement in the UK was at its height. Um, and in fact, it was an incredibly uh, um, interesting dynamic time um, for, for the UK. Um, this book spans, spans about 45 years and in that time the dictionary was, was produced but um, also women fought very hard to get the vote in the UK, which they didn't get. They got it partially uh, after World War I in, or just before, I think, the end of the war in 1818. Women over 30 with property um, could vote. Uh, but they didn't actually get full equal suffrage, equal enfranchisement until 1928. And um, it was the most incredible bit of serendipity when I read that women got um, equal rights with men for to vote and have representation in Parliament in 1928, just a few weeks after uh, the Oxford English Dictionary was celebrated for the final publication. And so these two stories track alongside each other the whole way. And of course, my book had to recognise that. And, and so the story, you know, is constantly weaving um, the development of the Oxford English Dictionary with the historic, um, the historic moments of that time. And of course, the other historic moment of that time is World War One. Um, so my book ostensibly <clears throat> finishes in 19, you know, in the middle of the war, it doesn't go all the way through the war. But it does, it does touch on the beginning of the war. And again, that couldn't be ignored. And um, again, uh, you know, I was surprised again about how many, um, how many words essentially uh, kind of developed and were born from, from that time, from the war. Um, so these moments in time, the suffragette movement in particular created new language. The war created new language and the dictionary it doesn't determine our language, it, it records it. And that's something I think we always have to remember, that words, the English language is very dynamic. It's always changing. Dictionaries are never caught up. They can never, ever be, um, <clears throat> be anywhere near where our language actually is. Um, and so, of course, they're going to be missing words. Um, it's much easier these days because you can enter things online straight away. Um, but back then, um, these are history books and, and that's something that I think we have to remember about dictionaries, that sometimes a word won't be in there, but it doesn't mean the word's not valid. It might mean that the word just hasn't been around for very long. Um, I just thought uh, perhaps Tracy would put up the third photo there, which is just a photograph of me in, um, the, in the press with Dr Murray. So, so <clears throat> this is me in, in their, one of their archives and you can see some of the old um, dictionaries on the shelving um, and there is me with my arm around a kind of cardboard cutout of James Murray. Uh, I think he was quite a bit taller than that in real life but, uh, yeah, that's, that's me with my, you know, I'm a fangirl here. Yeah, me with my idol. <laughs> okay, thanks, Tracy. Now, if anyone has any questions, I know Tracy is really happy to ask them. Uh, Tracy, do you have any questions? We do have a few here, thanks. Um, what have we got? Let's start with Anna. 
So Hannah says, um, hi Pip, thanks for your time today. You say that you were glad you leaned into the gift you'd been given of writing. How did you do that? Study, courses, mentors? Um, oh, what a wonderful question. I'm so glad you've asked. I, I haven't <clears throat> I haven't sort of studied writing. Now I did do a couple of short courses at TAFE. Um, I did a short story writing course at TAFE and a writing for children course at TAFE. Um, the Essay Writers Centre has been an enormous um, resource for me, uh, particularly when I hadn't published anything um, besides that poem in Dolly Magazine. Um, so the, I, I would do workshops at the Writers Centre, you know, quite regularly. I, I'd get to meet people. You can talk to the director there and get advice and so on. Um, and I found that fantastic. Just in terms of, I have to admit, um, years ago, I, I didn't think I even could join it because I wasn't a writer. Um, I'd never published anything. There's no way I would have called myself a writer. I used to call myself a scribbler. Um, but of course, anyone who writes, even people who don't write, but they're thinking of, you know, they're, they're composing words in their head. I think they're writers. Um, that's what I would say to anybody who hasn't perhaps written anything, probably hasn't published anything because most writers haven't. Um, I think you are writers uh, and I wished I'd had more confidence to call myself a writer. I might have started um, doing it a bit more seriously earlier. Um, so the Writer Centre was fantastic. Once I did start, once I did commit to writing and my first um, creative writing project was um, this non-fiction memoir called um, One Italian Summer. That sort of talks about how I got into writing because I was an academic and I was burnt out. Um, and, I've, and I was partly burnt out because I actually wanted to be a writer and I wasn't, I wasn't writing. Um, and so there was this huge tension in my life. Um, and basically I left work, took the kids out of school and my partner and I went to Italy to work as woofers on organic farms. And when I came back, I wrote about it. Um, and in writing about it, I understood really what had been going on in my life for the last few years. And what had been going on is that I had been resisting the urge to write. Um, and once I started, I, I couldn't stop and I, I became much happier. Um, I was doing what I wanted to do and um, that was just an enormous uh, sort of watershed for me. But in writing, uh, I love, and, and in life, um, I always have mentors. So in all of my work, I've had mentors and I seek them out. Um, I love learning and I love learning from people who know more than me. And they're everywhere, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and so I had a wonderful mentor for the memoir, uh, Carol Lefevre, who is a fiction and non-fiction writer from Adelaide. And she taught me so much. Um, and then when I started writing the Dictionary of Lost Words, I sought out um, Tony Jordan, who is a novelist who lives in Melbourne. She's just published her fifth novel um, called The Fragments, which is fantastic if you want to get hold of it. Um, but one of my favourite novels of hers um, is this one. It's um, called Nine Days and it's... It's a really beautiful historical novel based on this photograph, actually, uh, which was taken um, during World War II in Australia. And it's of um, a woman saying goodbye 
to a man going off to war. Um, and it's a really beautiful novel set in Melbourne um, uh, based around that time. Um, anyway, Tony was a wonderful mentor for me for this book. I probably seek out mentors when I'm more than halfway through writing a project, when I know where I'm going, where I've written quite a bit. Um, and then the mentor just helps me to understand what I'm doing well and also what I could be doing better. And um, I, I would always recommend getting a mentor for any major project in your life, work, parenting, writing, anything. Yeah. Great. Uh, Mandy says, your partner is amazing. Where on earth did he find a copy of that book? Oh, I know. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I think he, he basically went online. He just did, he did his research and he went online. And um, and it was I, I was so surprised and so delighted um, and it's wonderful too because I had already mostly written the book but not completely and I have used it for research so it's been lovely because normally I would go down to the um, state library and to be honest I can look up I can get kind of access to looking up the first edition online and I just never did I. I so enjoyed um, the physical object of the dictionary. Um, I, you know, you might see me. I just am constantly caressing it. It's terrible. Shannon probably shouldn't have gotten, gotten it. It's, um, it's a threat to our relationship now. But um, so it's, it's just such a beautiful object. You know, the pages are relatively, relatively thin, but not as thin as you would expect given how big this book is. Um, you can see you can see printing marks that you probably wouldn't see these days because this is you know these were done on mechanical printers and and so on and it's just uh, it's just exquisite and um, I still use this this particular volume um, to look up words so it's it's a fascinating one and I, just the other day and I'll, I'll tell you one or two words I was looking up the other day so because I've only got a to a and B I can only look up a and B words um, but I was just looking for words and there's a little it's like a little cross next to like a, a Christian cross actually next to uh, words that are obsolete so I was looking particularly for words that um, aren't used very much even at the time this was published so even in 1888 they were considered obsolete. Um, and a couple that I came across that I loved, one was any when, which is essentially the same as any time. Um, and I just love it because it just makes perfect sense. You know, I'll see you any when, <laughs> or I'll get to that any when. Um, another one is anything Aryan. And an anything Aryan is somebody who has no particular uh, creed, so no particular religion, uh, no particular belief. Um, and I quite like that too because it's such a kind of um, clunky word in a way, but it makes sense. Uh, so they're two words that I came across. A another word that I came across, <laughs> which, which I quite like. Actually, I have to say I love men, so I'm not this. This book is, while it has been kind of talked about as a, a feminist novel, and it is because it's about women and it's about women's experience and it's, I, I suppose it's also political in that it, it talks about the suffrage movement. What it doesn't do is pit men against women. It's, it's not that kind of a book. So um, there are some beautiful men in this book. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that um, readers will, will think that too. Um, but there is this word that I did come across in my A and B 
called Breel, B-R-E-E-L. And a Breel is a worthless, good-for-nothing fellow. And um, I'm sure there are times when, when that might be, might be useful <laughs> to some of us. Um, yeah, so there's some words I've come across in this. But throughout the research, I came across lots of interesting words, and I'm happy to, to um, talk about a few more later, if you'd like me to. That's great. Angela would like to know, did your publisher discourage using a prologue? Ah, good question. Um, it's a good question because while I didn't go, because I didn't go to university, I didn't do a creative writing degree or anything like that, I did seek out a lot of, I did self-teach, if, if you know what I mean. And I read a lot of stuff about um, prologues and, and um that you shouldn't have them for some reason. And I don't know why. I actually really love a prologue uh, personally. And um, sometimes a prologue can get you into this, it can get you hooked on a story um, so that you are then willing to give the introductory chapters a bit of time because um, these days our attention span is so short that we don't have the kind of attention span readers did say back in the 19th century when they could read through chapters and chapters and chapters of setup um, before getting to the sort of the real story. And having that setup actually then makes the real story much more um, meaningful, a, a much deeper reading experience. But we just don't really have the time or energy to read chapters and chapters of setup. And I think a prologue can sometimes do that very efficiently because it can either, prologues sometimes um, take you right to the centre of a story, right to the middle of a story, and then as you read, you go towards where that prologue was. Um, or sometimes it can just give you an inciting incident, um, which in some ways is what my, my prologue does. It sort of tells you why uh, words and slips are so important to Esme. Um, you know, the first slip that she ever really thought was important was a slip with her mother's name on it. And she's four years old. She can't actually cognitively explain why it matters. Um, and so those beginning chapters, there's no rhyme or reason to her behaviour, but the reader knows why she might be doing what she's doing. Um, and for me, you know, two pages in a prologue help to set that up without having to explain it so much. So, but my, but Affirm Press had no problem with the prologue. And in fact, Affirm Press are just are very supportive in terms of, um, they're not there to tell me what to write. They're just there to help what I, help to make sure that what I've written is as good as it can be. Great. Uh, Judith would like to know, why are you sure that vulgar in your example is used judgmentally? Oh, okay, because uh, I think any words that, uh, because it's, it is passing a judgment, it's saying it's vulgar. It's not just saying it's a, as soon as, as, soon as they've um, basically described the word in a way that is beyond the actual meaning of the word. So the, the meaning of the word is it's an abbreviation for pantaloons. That is, that is the objective fact of that word. As soon as they've said vulgar, They've passed a judgment. Um, I'm not sure how to explain that really, but they could have said a delightful. Um, it's an adjective essentially, and it's unnecessary in a dictionary. So um, they're not just providing the um, 
the definition uh, or the meaning of the word, they are providing a, a, a judgment about whether or not uh, they think it's okay. Uh, so another another wonderful um, another wonderful descriptor in the dictionary was not used in polite society. Um, and who is to say what polite society is? Um, I think these, when I say they're judgments, I think what I'm also saying is they are descriptors used by a certain group of people about another group of people very often. Um, and so there's a lot of racism in the first Oxford English Dictionary. Um, you know, the words used to describe uh, some words do talk about, I can't, I won't give you any actual examples because I might get them wrong, but, but the racist language is there as well. Um, colonial language is there. Um, and that's all been taken out. So I suppose one one um, reason I know it's it's judgmental is because the second edition took it out. So it wasn't necessary in order to provide a meaning, an objective meaning of the word. Um, it really told us more about the people who were defining the words. Great, thanks. Uh, Jen would like to know, did you consider trying to contact descendants of Edith Thompson? I did, I did try, I did consider it. And I decided not to because, um, so she didn't have children, so her descendants would have been pretty far removed from her personally. Um, <clears throat> and I didn't think they had any more right to, um, like I didn't think, say, a great-great-niece had any more right than, than another great-great-niece or great-great-nephew to make, to make the call. Um, I, what I made sure that I did, and I did this in my memoir as well, because in my memoir I, I didn't um, give people pseudonyms in my memoir. I, I, I talked about people using their real names in real places. And, again, it was another dilemma. What I've always tried to do um, in fiction and non-fiction is actually not to pass judgment. So I try not to write in a way where I'm imposing my notion of um, their behaviour or their point of view, I'm trying not to judge it. I just, I'm, I just um, show it happening and it's up to the reader to decide whether they think um, that something that a character does is good, bad or ugly. I don't actually say whether it's good, bad or ugly. And so it's really our own perceptions of things, our own philosophies, our own, um, our own values, which are then brought to the novel. If, if you know what I mean. So um, some people might think that there are some sections in this novel that are vulgar, <laughs> um, and and um, and that's and that's obviously a reader a reader completes a book. So this book will be slightly different for everybody, and that's because the reader is part of um, the final product, and I can't. I don't want to tell the reader what to think about any of the people in the book, but what I won't do is tell them what I think about any of the people in the book either. So I've tried to do that with Edith. I tried to be very, and all of the characters, because um, <clears throat> there are so many characters in this book who are real. So James Murray, Henry Bradley, Ross Frith and Elsie Murray, they're all in there because they were all part of the Oxford English Dictionary. What I've done, occasionally they have, dialogue and obviously they never said those things 
um, but wherever possible, I have just tried to be true to the uh, personality and the nature of the real individual. And I've done that through my research. Um, there's lots of little anecdotes that I got from uh, Peter Gilliver, who's the lexicographer from Oxford University Press, who I spoke to. And um, yeah, he gave me lots of little anecdotes about some of the lexicographers um, that never went into his book either, uh, but have made it into my book. So for me, I know what they are. I know what the truth of some of these things are, but um, they helped me to fill out some of these personalities so that they weren't two dimensional. Yeah. Great. Sarah says, um, did any particular person or bit of research inspire the character Tilda? No, no, she's just someone I wish I was more like, and I could quite easily, um, uh, uh, yeah, I would admire someone like Tilda, but no, she wasn't based on anyone at all. She's a complete um, figment of my imagination. Yeah. Excellent. So. And uh, Paula would like to know, Pip, could you talk about including Muriel Matters in your book and what it meant to you to have an Adelaidean in your story? Okay, yes, I'd love to talk about that. And I'll just dig into my little um, trunk of goodies. So here is a, a book that I read. I knew about Muriel Matters before reading this book um, and there are some wonderful, wonderful books that talk about um, women's suffrage in Australia uh, that will talk about Muriel Matters. Muriel Matters was uh, an Adelaide woman. Her, uh, she, she, she was an actress, but she was an orator. So she was somebody who would stand on stage and she would orate uh, poetry or, or, you know, long passages. And apparently she was, she was quite an incredible orator. She went to London um, in around 1903, 1905 uh, to become an actress. But in the end, she decided she would join the suffrage movement um, and she became a quite a, um, an important figure in the women's suffrage movement in the UK, partly because she was such a good speaker. So she could really rally people. Um, it was really important for me, again, to, um, to, to bring, bring her into this really, I have to be, it was a bit selfish. I wanted Adelaide to have an appearance in this book. Um, and because I knew Muriel Matters had spent time in the UK and was such a big part of the suffrage movement over there, I thought that was that was one of the nice links between Adelaide and the UK. And I'm sure a lot of your um, a lot of you know that Adelaide was uh, and South Australia was the first place in the world to have full suffrage for women. It wasn't the first place where women got the vote. New Zealand was the first place where women could vote. But women could, didn't have the right to, um, to sort of join Parliament in, at that time. So full suffrage came to women in South Australia before it came to women anywhere else in, in the world. Um, and at the time, that included Aboriginal women and men. So up until Federation, women, Aboriginal and, and white women in, in South Australia could vote and they could run for Parliament if they chose to. They, they hadn't, but they could. And because of that, they were um, quite influential in the suffrage movement in the UK um, <clears throat> because they could go over there and say, you know, society hasn't collapsed because we've got the vote. They were proof uh, that, you know, all of the fear-mongering was just that, just fear-mongering and not based on anything. Um, 
And so Muriel Matters uh, is also someone that most of us have never heard of, and we really should have. She's a, she's a hero of, of the women's suffrage movement um, in the UK, and she's a wonderful export um, from Australia. So um, I wanted to include her. She doesn't, have a, she doesn't have a big role to play. She's simply mentioned. Um, but Adelaide does have a role to play in this novel, and I'm not going to really talk about why. Uh, I, I think you should read it, but... Um, yeah, Adelaide does have a role in this novel. And that was important to me because it's the place where I live, it's the place I love, and I also thought it actually has a history that made sense for this book. And I would love people in the UK to be reading this and to find out a little bit more about the influence of Australia and South Australia on their political system. <laughs> Great. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, Julie says, was the word suffragette in the first edition published in 1928? Yes. So the word suffragette um, was in the first edition. It was first coined in 1906 uh, by newspaper men. So it's a really interesting word because it was originally used as an insult. Um, so the, the suffix et, E-T-T-E, is used to um, indicate that something is less than or smaller than or an imitation of the real thing. So if you think about kitchenette, um, that's, that's telling you that it's a small kitchen. It's, it's not the full deal. Um, and so newspaper men started calling women who were um, starting to become more militant. Um, they started calling them suffragettes. And these were the women that followed Emmeline Pankhurst. Um, from the, the WSPU, which is the Women's Social and Political Union. And Emmeline Pankhurst advocated a much more militant um, protest, I suppose, including property damage um, and even an arson and, uh, and even certain levels of violence. And the newspapers started calling these women suffragettes and that what they were doing was differentiating them from the more polite suffragists who simply were trying to use words essentially to make their point and to fight for the vote. Words and, and sometimes pranks. So <clears throat> Muriel Matters was a suffragist. She's often described as a suffragette, but she rejected that. She never ever um, thought of herself as a suffragette from what I've read. Um, even though she was imprisoned, just as many suffragettes were imprisoned, but also suffragists. Um, and I think she may have gone on hunger strike, but I'm not quite sure about that. Um, so the suffragettes were more likely to be imprisoned because they were more likely to have, um, have participated in militant um, action for the vote. Um, but, but anyway, so the word suffragette was, was coined by newspaper men as a bit of an insult. And I I can't help thinking that, you know, we are doing a similar thing to many young women who protest around climate change. We, we call them little girls. We sometimes talk about them having mental health <laughs> problems, which is exactly how uh, women suffragettes were referred to. Um, uh, in fact, um, Tracy, have you, got the, have you got the image of the suffragette slip? Sure, just there with me. So basically, by this stage, some people were sending in examples of words on... So as I said, examples of words were always um, sent in on little slips of paper. After a while, people just started cutting out 
newspaper clippings and underlining the sentence that they thought was a good example of a word. So this is a slip for suffragette uh, and they have um, clipped this from a 1909 newspaper and you can see the bit that they've underlined and it says women of the suffragette type which is ungallantly defined by another as highly educated screeching childless and husbandless sisterhood. <laughs> so that was how um, many uh, suffra suffragettes were referred to uh, back in the day. What happened with the word suffragette, though, is really fascinating because it did start off as an insult, but Emmeline Pankhurst was very clever and she basically appropriated the word and called the journal that they, that they published the suffragette. And so from that moment on, the word suffragette took on a very different meaning. Um, it became a, a word that uh, was powerful and descriptive of, of these women's um, fight for the right to vote. And today, that's how we understand it. So whenever I have um, interviews for this book, people always talk about the suffragette movement. They don't talk about the suffrage movement, they talk about the suffragette movement. Um, and that is so telling because that means that Emmeline Pankhurst succeeded in appropriating that word for her cause, which I, I just think is a lovely way of demonstrating how words change over time. Great, uh, on that theme, Holly would like to know, could you please name the newspaper that first sourced the word suffragette? Oh, I, I don't think I can, I'm sorry, I haven't, I can't remember. Um, I, I can, it wouldn't have been the Times, it would have been one of the um, sort of uh, tabloid newspapers. Um, that's my memory of it, but I'm sorry, I can't give you the actual newspaper. So we'll do one last question because it's an interesting one from Sarah and she says, do you have one single favourite word and why is it a favourite? Um, Oh, look, I, I do. Can I talk about two favourite words? I have one favourite word, which is not in the dictionary, but is in my book, and that word is knackered. Um, and I love the word knackered because I was born in the UK, but I came out to Australia when I was three, so I, I've grown up here. But I have English family, and they are very fond of using the word knackered. They use it all the time. And they use it in a way that means something different to tired or listless. Knackered is what you feel when you've, when you've been working really hard. Um, and it comes, obviously it comes from the word knackery, which is, it, it, it's a horse term. So it's where horses go when, when they're all worn out. And, and that's what it means. It means you're worn out. And I love this word. And it wasn't in the Oxford English Dictionary, but I suspect it's probably been used for decades you know, I'm, I'm sure it would have been used at the time and it does make an appearance in my book. Um, it's just that it wasn't used by people who would write books. It was used by people who were worn out from physical labour. Um, so that's one of my favourite words uh, because it's not in the dictionary. Another favourite word that isn't in the dictionary is bump. And I think bump, the reason it's my favourite word at the moment is because it, it's short for bum fodder. And it's a word that was uh, coined during the First World War, where sh toilet paper was short. There was there was a shortage of toilet paper in the trenches, and they had to use all sorts of alternatives. Um, and they came up with so many different words for toilet paper, essentially. And one of them was bump. Um, 
yeah, short for bum fodder. So I just thought that's probably topical at the moment. Awesome. Well, that's great. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Pip, for joining us this morning. It's been a fascinating talk and sharing your book with us. Um, it's obvious that an amazing amount of extensive and quite exhausting research has been uh, put into delivering this novel. So thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you, thank you, you so about. much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me and thank you to everybody who joined in. Um, I hope you're all staying safe and healthy and uh, making the most of some quiet time if you get to have it. So many people aren't. <laughs> um, people would like me to mention that her book is available uh, to purchase either online or by phone from the following local bookshops. So please show your support to them at this time. Matilda's Bookshop in Stirling, Imprints Booksellers and Dimmicks in the City, and Dylan's Bookshop at Norwood. And when our libraries open again, your book will certainly be on our shelves. Yeah. Yeah. And can um, I just say, I am fascinated that you started out in Dolly magazine. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> I know. I was very sad when it closed up. <laughs> and when your next book is published, when you have a new one out, you can join us anywhere. Oh, thank you, Tracy. I would love to. No problem. Love to. Thanks again. <laughs> and please follow the Marion Library's Facebook page, uh, the City of Marion website, and check your inbox to be kept up to date on all of the upcoming Library Through the Lens presentations and workshops. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.